welcome back and today we're talking about inventions in the 1900s. So I did acrylic paint and since it's technically before Annika's, I'm going to go first. It was founded, well it was not founded, it was created in 1934 by, by a German chemist whose name I don't know if I can pronounce, but it's Otto and then it's Rome I think? Close enough. Yeah. Anyway, he was a German chemist. That's really all I had on him because I was researching, you know, the paint and I found this really cool article um, from justpaint.org and I thought it was really interesting. So that's kind of where I spent all of my time. But what they actually did is they ran an experiment sort of to test how different things affected how paint dried. Of course, there were only a few things that they changed just to keep things the same. Um, before I get into that, I'm going to talk about, you know, how paint dries. As water and co-solvents evacuate or are pushed out of the acrylic paint, the acrylic solids move closer together and that causes it to dry and harden and become stronger. Once, like, so the first thing that happens is they evaporate. They become closer together and they are able to squeeze more out. So it's not just evaporation, the entire time it's also things pushing together and pushing it out. But there are actually stages to how paint dries. And so the first stage is wet paint, you know, the, when it's in the container to until it is put on the canvas, you know, stuff like that. It hasn't started to set up at all. It's still completely wet. This has the starting number of volatiles, which are the water and coal solvents I mentioned earlier. It's what comes out of the paint in order to make it dry. This ends when you can no longer easily and uniformly move the paint around. So. When you can no longer, you know, brush the paint around and it stays exactly the same and very smooth, that's when the stage ends. It can become stiffer in this stage and still be wet paint, so be careful with that. The next stage is the skinned over stage, and this is where you can touch the paint and have it, you know, not lift up. Now, there are less volatiles, they've gone out, but there's still quite a few left, most of them still remain. The next is the touch dry state, which is a little confusing because the other one you could touch it and paint wouldn't come off, and this is the touch dry state, which sounds like it should be that. And this is actually very close to the skinned over stage, especially in very thin coats of paint. It could be only a few seconds. On thicker paint, this is where you can touch it without it getting wrinkled. So if you've ever used thicker paint, well not thicker paint, but if you've ever put down thicker coats of paint, I mean, I guess also thicker paint would work because it's usually thicker coats, but you'll know that there's a point when the surface dries and you can touch it and then you touch it and it gets wrinkled and you can't fix it and it's really annoying. So touch dry is when it's no longer wrinkled and you know there's even less volatiles in this stage. There shouldn't be any areas where the paint is not not relatively dry like there shouldn't be any random wet spots in the paint at this point. This is when many people assume their paint is dry but there are actually still actually there's only one more stage but you know there's still another stage. It seems dry because you can touch it, there's no wrinkles, it works out pretty well. But there's actually another stage, which is the the cure to coalesce stage is the next stage. And this is when most of the acrylic solids are, very, are squeezed very closely together, most of the volatiles are out. This is, you know, largely thought of as the final stage. But in order to make acrylics work better with water, there are additives. You know, and since they help acrylics work better with water, they do absorb some water. So they will retain some moisture even though the paint appears to be completely dry. And there's also times when the paint is only 
at a stage of partial co coalescence, so it's not actually completely dry. And there are still pores in this paint and water can move throughout it, like in and out of the film or the part where it touches the air or just throughout the entire thing of paint, if that makes sense. And something else that is important to know, well, not really important, I just thought it was really interesting, so I wrote this down, it doesn't, it doesn't exactly fit in, but paint can actually achieve quite a bit of integrity even when there are still large amounts of volatiles remaining. In this article they use like when there's 5 to 20 percent remaining it's pretty strong. The paint is not like it's, it's pretty strong it's pretty hard you can't really move it and there could still be 5 to 20 percent. Obviously that's a pretty great range but you know just for just as an interesting fact. You know of course things on the outside are going to affect this temperature and humidity, especially humidity, are going to change just how the paint dries, how long it takes. Actually, as the, like, the paint reaches an equilibrium with the temp as the temperature and humidity changes, you know, it eventually gets to a point where it will not absorb more water as the humidity changes, but there will always be some extreme humidity where it will change because paint is a porous substance it's always going to be somewhat affected by it, but it won't be, once it reaches this equilibrium, it will not be as, it won't be changed as much. And then we get to their, their sort of test thing. It's, they use two different products. They use regular gel, which is a gloss that I believe is used to cure nail polish, but I'm not 100% sure on that, but I know it is a gloss. And then they also used heavy bottom titanium white, which I just, I always think of Bob Ross because whenever I watch Bob Ross, it's like the one paint that's there. There's always the, you know, cadmium red and all that, but there's, I just remember the titanium white. It's always there. It's just, it's a white paint. And then there were three substrates that they chose, which are the things that are going to be painted on, which were aluminum, Lexan, I think that's how you pronounce it, which is a polycarbonate plastic. It's somewhat similar to plexiglass. There are some differences, but just to sort of have something to sort of compare it to but there are some differences obviously and then polyester canvas and then there were also three different thicknesses for the paint which was um, 1 16th of an inch 1 8th of an inch and 1 14th of an inch which seems small but if you have paint that's a quarter of an inch thick that's pretty thick oh another thing that's important that i did not mention earlier is um as volatiles are pushed out there is less weight, which makes sense, but I just wanted to like say it because I think it mentions it a little bit later in the article and I might bring that in. But the paint will weigh less as the volatiles escape because, you know, stuff is leaving. It's going to, there's less substance, there's, it's going to weigh less. They had, I think, three methods to see how dry the paint is. The first one was, you know, physically touching or moving the paint, just seeing, you know, especially for the touch dry stage, if it wrinkles when you touch it, especially for the thicker coats, that's it's a very easy way to tell. The second is to look at the paint. As the paint dries, it's going to shrink and one of them changes color, the other one really doesn't. The titanium white, it just goes from white to white, you know. It's it's not super noticeable, but it will shrink and it will look different, especially, I wanna say especially in the thinner coats, just because if it's a really thin coat, since it's even, I don't know how well that would be. I have it, I didn't actually see it, so I don't know exactly what it looked like. But the gel goes from a white to a translucent color. So that one there is quite a bit of change in. 
And then the third method, the third method was to weigh it. And this, this wasn't really used alone as much as it was used with the other methods, because I'm sure they used all three of them. This was especially used with the other ones to see how dry the paint was at specific times. And this was not to see how it dried specifically, but they did physically manipulate the paint. They poked it with toothpicks at the beginning. They used the thicker coats were better. They were better to use for this. They were better test subjects because the thinner paint dried so fast there wasn't really much change. On the first day, they saw that the, they saw that the titanium white created a crust and the gel was rubbery when prodded. During some point on the second day, they couldn't actually use toothpicks anymore because the films were too strong, so they had to use pencils. And by the end of the second week, it could break the pencil. So, you know, the paint's pretty hard. You stab with a pencil, the lead breaks instead of the paint. That's when you... It's, it's pretty strong at that point. And then the main conclusions from this um, experiment, test, whatever you want to call it sort of thing, uh, were that most volatiles exit the paint in early stages because... There's little to no paint skin that stops it so they can freely, you know, go out. Yeah, just, they can go out, but they can go out faster and through more area. And the substrate or the thing that you paint on does have a great effect on the amount of time that it takes to dry because things like canvas actually allow the paint to do a sort of two-way drying thing. That's what they call it in the article because it can dry from the bottom, you know, like where the canvas is air can also come through that. Whereas if you paint on aluminum, air is not going through the aluminum. So it can only dry on the place where it's, or the places where it's touching air. Whereas on the canvas, it can dry almost, you know, all around because there is air going through the canvas. And, you know, then after that, because of that reason, if you paint on something like aluminum, it loses less weight over a given amount of time when compared to the canvas. And, you know, thicker paint dries slower than, than thinner paint. Thicker paint will always dry slower, regardless of substance. I'm sure if you put like thicker paint on canvas and then thinner paint on aluminum, depending on the sizes, that could change. But if they're always on the same thing and they're always in the same atmosphere, and the only thing changing is the thickness, the thicker paint will, you know, always take a longer time to dry. And another interesting thing that they actually found was that titanium white lost weight faster than the gel, which means titanium white lost volatiles faster, which is just the substance, but I just thought it was interesting. And then there's some more stuff I could go into, but I'm not going to for, you know, time purposes. But if you want to check it out, it's on justpaint.org. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's like, in, yeah, investigating the drying process of acrylic color and gel medium, which sounds boring. I actually thought it was really interesting. If you weren't very interested in this, you know, sorry, but I thought it was pretty interesting. But yeah, that's all I have. I want to go paint a picture now. All right, I'm going to be jumping ahead a little bit, I think, to the 1960s. And I'm going to be talking about uh, the creator of what's called Kevlar. So for those of you who don't know what Kevlar is, it's, it's like a special type of fabric that's like five times stronger than steel. And it's most well-known use is in bulletproof armor, but it has a bunch of other materials that it's used in, which I'll later touch on. But first, let me introduce you to the incredible Stephanie Qualick. I believe I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but I might be wrong, and I apologize if I am <laughs> pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, she was born in 1923 in New Kensington, Pennsylvania, and um, 
Honestly, she owes a little bit of her diligence and inspiration to her, to her parents. Um, they were Polish immigrants, and her father would often take her outside to collect leaves and flowers and seeds and such, you know, to record and write descriptions of the findings, you know, when she was young. Unfortunately, he ended up dying when she was 10, which is really tragic. Um, but she said that her interest in science primarily stemmed from his influence on her youth. But her mother then worked as a seamstress to provide for the family during like the Great Depression and the Second World War, which is kind of important, you know, because Koala picked up an interest in sewing for her mother. And um, coincidentally, that ended up being what she ended up going into in more of a chemistry field. She actually wanted to become a fashion designer early on, but then she later found an interest in the lovely science of chemistry, which is probably a little bit better because um, it's chemistry. <laughs> so she attended what was then the Women's College of Carnegie Mellon University. That um, was called the Margaret Morrison Carnegie College. And after majoring in chemistry, she applied for a position at DuPont, where nylon was created, fun fact. And she eventually she did intend on eventually going to medical school after she earned you know more money but inevitably realized that polymer chemistry is amazing and awesome and incredibly interesting and she said by bothering to doing to go on to med school when you know life as a chemist is obviously the way to go so qualic helped with numerous projects at dupont but the most significant one was probably the quest to determine the type of fiber that could withstand extreme conditions. And this was around the year 1965. So you can probably guess where this is going since I'm talking about Kevlar, but Qualic was working, you know, synthesizing large polyamides, which a polyamide is just a specific type of, not really specific, but a type of carbon chain where there is basically one of the carbons or sometimes multiple of the carbons is bonded to both an oxygen and a nitrogen atom. And then there's a bunch of repeating units of that. So Qualic was synthesizing those polyamide chemicals, and then she had to dissolve them. And then she had to spin that solution into some fibers. And what she ended up finding out is that polyamides will start to line up with each other and form this liquid crystal, which is basically, that's how you make Kevlar, to put it in very simple layman's terms. So when it's spun, those crystals will orient, them, orient themselves very linearly. And then they can even stack on each other, which is why Kevlar has incredible strength. So yeah, it's it's Kevlar is very different from, especially at that time, a lot of other fibers out there because, well, it's synthetic and it was like one of the very first synthetic fibers. Nylon predates it, but oh, that's cool. I'll talk about that in a second because... They have very similar baking processes, and I highly recommend looking up how you make Kevlar because it looks really cool. Um, yeah, but the fancy dance, the fancy pants name for Kevlar is polypiphenylene terephthalamide. If you're curious, I was proud of myself because I was able to pronounce that when I like first read it. So I'm proud of myself. Um, I bring that up because part of the reason this liquid can turn into these Kevlar fibers is again, because of like the anatomy or the structure of the Kevlar molecules. So it's very linear, like I said, and they're kind of shaped like a rod and they have a lot of benzene in them. And benzene's cool. There's a reason behind like why that's so strong. I think it's a little bit more complicated to talk about. So just know there's benzene in it. So these molecules can keep linking onto each other, continuing the rod as you kind of like spin the fiber. That property gives Kevlar incredible tinsel strength because it's really hard to break that 
attraction of the, the, of the monomers that make up the polymer. And additionally, um, since it, there's a lot of since there's a lot of amides or amides in there, um, which are nitrogen bonded to the carbon and also the oxygen on there, and the oxygen both oxygen and nitrogen have lone pairs on their atoms in that molecule. They can form a lot of what are called hydrogen bonds as they stack on each other, and hydrogen bonds are really really strong intermolecular forces. Um, so all of these things together make it incredibly hard to just break the molecules apart from each other, which is why Kevlar is five times stronger than steel. Kevlar, like I said, is unique because it was the first liquid crystal polymer. So what that means is I'm going to talk about nylon here. It's because like nylon, the fibers are kind of pulled from this liquid solution. And that probably makes no sense if you've never seen nylon be made before. So. I highly, highly recommend you just Google like nylon lab into Google and then you like click on like one of those like crappy quality YouTube videos of like the early 2000s of this college professor mixing two solutions together. And then there's this little film that will develop on the top of that solution after he mixes them. And then you pull it and you'll see this like this string that just comes from the liquid and it just keep pulling and keep pulling and keep pulling and it just keeps going until like all the solution is gone and you have tons and tons and tons of nylon. It's so cool to watch. I, I've yet to do it myself. It's definitely on my bucket list because Kevlar, it's a very similar process. So that's why I explained what nylon is because of that. Um, and as far as applications go for Kevlar, it has over 200 applications so it's used in like tennis rackets skis boats airplanes um bulletproof vests car tires bike tires firefighting gear gloves and the list the list goes on it's a fiber it's like a fabric it can be used in anything but because it's also five times stronger than steel it can be used in stuff like car tires for example i think that was the original reason for the study was there was um, that Qualic was working on was there was they wanted to find a replacement for like car tires or was that nylon? Oh, maybe nylon. I think nylon was maybe because like in like the in, during World War II there was the shortage of like, tin and metals and stuff, so they're looking for a replacement for that, and they found that um, Kevlar, if I remember correctly, might have been more to find some like petroleum-based fiber. That they could do because it, it a lot of the um starting process starts from crude oil as well anyways i digress qualic was given the lavoisier medal if my french is correct i don't take french so i could be wrong in the pronunciation of that um but she was given that just for this for her discovery she was awarded that medal in 1995 and that medal is dupont's highest science award that they give out and even when she died in 2014, she was still the only woman to have received that award. And I still believe she is the only woman to have received one to this day, which is really unfortunate. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week where we'll be discussing some more interesting chemistry topics.